right, good evening everyone, and thank you for coming out on this rainy night uh, to hear my little discussion about psychedelics, Christian community, and the new search for God. So I graduated from Duke Divinity School just this past year in 2023. Uh, I'm a Baptist minister, uh, have been in Cooperative Baptist Fellowship since 2019. Uh, and I never thought this is what I would be talking so much about in my professional life. Uh, but in 2021, I decided to take advantage of decriminalization laws and try psychedelics for the first time, specifically magic mushrooms. I tried a relatively high dose because I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, and after the running up and down the hall and rolling back and forth in bed, clutching my icon of Madonna and child and saying the same prayer over and over again, I came out of that experience really thinking three things. One, I needed to be a better person. Two, I needed to be a better partner. And three, I needed to be a better Christian. But when I looked online to try to figure out what do I do with this experience? How do I integrate this radical departure from normal life into my normal life, I found that there were virtually no resources for Christians to figure out how to do that. And as I talked to many of my friends in seminary, I found the same thing. Many of them had used psychedelics. Many of them had had powerful experiences that affected their spiritual life, but they kept those experiences to themselves. They were afraid to talk about them. And at the end of the day, they did not get the existential and spiritual care that they needed. This isn't just a thing that's happening in spiritual communities either. A recent survey from the National Institute of Health found that last year, about 8% of young adults use psychedelic drugs. This means if you do the math, over 10% of young adults have ever used psychedelic drugs which is about four times higher than it was a couple decades ago. This is a growing situation that the church needs to respond to. Psychedelics have been decriminalized in Colorado, Oregon, Seattle, Washington, DC, Detroit, San Francisco, and there's currently attempts to get it to be decriminalized or full out legalized in New Jersey and California that are rather serious. I really thought this was gonna be a side project for me, not something I'd continue pursuing academically, until I was in TJ Maxx one day, shopping with my wife here, and this 18 or 19 year old kid approached me and said, hey, do you, do you use psychedelics? Because I was dressed kind of like a hippie. He, he made an educated <laughs> guess. And I was like, I mean, yeah, I have some experience with it. And he said, well, you're not gonna believe this, or maybe you will, but I met Jesus on DMT a few weeks ago. And when I listened to this guy talk, he explained that he had met a being of pure light, of pure love, of pure beauty, and that when he was done with the experience, he thought to himself, what other being of pure light, love, and beauty could there be except Jesus Christ? And he began, uh, he began attending church. What worried me about this young man is that he had chosen a less than open-minded congregation to start frequenting. He did not have the education or the background to know what was a safe place for him and what was an unsafe place for him. And I've thought about that young man a lot as I've continued on this journey with psychedelic theology, which is what I call my ministry now. 
So what I hope to do this evening and in future discussions that I'll be having is to give Christian leaders and Christian uh, followers in general some tools they can use to help their friends, to help their colleagues, and to help people in their congregation understand what happened to them when they take psychedelic drugs and also how to be safe and integrate those experiences for the future. Now, I'm not sure what everyone's level of experience is with psychedelics tonight, but I'm going to start at the beginning with what psychedelics are. Psychedelics are a specific categorization of drugs uh, below the umbrella of hallucinogens. So psychedelics are a type of hallucinogen that are primarily affecting serotonin receptors, especially the 5-HT2A serotonin receptor. Psychedelics tend to come in four overlapping classes. There are, at this moment, thousands of known psychedelics out there that are on the street being sold, that are being found in the Amazon today, and there's no way that anyone can remember all of them. So it's more important to remember four overlapping categories, classical and novel, and then natural and synthetic. Classical psychedelics are the things that were popular in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, your LSD, mescaline, magic mushrooms, and DMT. Novel psychedelics are those that have only appeared rather recently. That would be things like 5-MeO, DMT, 2-CB, and DPT. Your natural psychedelics are those that either occur in nature or have an analog that appears in nature. So even though LSD can only be stable when made carefully in a chemist's lab, there's a clear analog to fungus that grows on wheat, which is what that is derived from. On the other hand, there are other substances like 2CB or DPT or a number of other classes that have no real similar chemicals in the natural world that we've discovered yet. So now that we have a sense of what psychedelics are as substances and how we can categorize them, what aren't psychedelics? It is a common mistake to conflate all drugs that cause hallucinations with psychedelics. But under the umbrella of hallucinogens, there are three subcategories. You've got the deliriants, you've got the disassociatives, and then you've got your psychedelics. Deliriants are closer to what you might experience if you take too much Benadryl, or also if you've ever seen the uh, Super Mario mushroom with its red and uh, white spots that's usually found in Russia, the fly agaric, that's also a deliriant drug that's frequently confused with a psychedelic. Likewise, something like PCP that also creates hallucinations isn't a psychedelic because it doesn't affect people in the same way, which we'll get to the specific effects here in a moment. This evening, we're primarily talking about classical psychedelics because those are the most common. Those are the ones that are being researched heavily right now, the ones that people are thinking about the most right now, and the ones people are consuming the most right now. So when thinking about what psychedelics aren't, I want us to remember that classical psychedelics are non-addictive. Because they do not primarily affect the dopamine receptors, which are one of the primary causes of chemical addiction, they don't create the same sort of habit-forming behavior that even something like caffeine or nicotine causes. Likewise, classical psychedelics have virtually no risk of lethal overdose. 
There are some interesting stories that I've come across in my research uh, where people thought were at a party and they thought they were snorting uh, cocaine only to have someone come over and go, dude, that was an entire line of pure LSD. And they took 500 times or more the normal recreational dose of LSD all at once. And they have had no long-term negative effects. In fact, there's one really interesting case study out of a journal in the UK where someone had their arthritis symptoms go away after the experience and most of their mental health issues seem to get figured out. There's also a great story about an illicit LSD manufacturer who was operating out of Wales, who was being a little clumsy in the lab. It's hard when you're working with pure LSD not to consume a little of it while you're doing it, even with the proper safety measures. And he dropped the liquid LSD beaker, which broke. And when he went to pick it up, he slit his hand open through the glove and poured pure liquid LSD directly into his bloodstream, enough from what he reported to supply all of Woodstock, which was his goal. <laughs> and despite the fact that he was tripping for a week straight, which is much different than the 12 hours you'd normally expect from LSD, he came down from the experience with no long-term physical or mental effects, but truly believing that his purpose in life was to bring this substance to the wider world, not just for profit, but because it could help people understand love. Now that we have an understanding of what psychedelics are and what psychedelics aren't as a substance, I think what we're really here tonight is here for tonight is not the chemistry, is not to think about these substances in the abstract, but to ask, if somebody consumes these substances through smoking it or consuming it, or even in some cases through injection, how does this actually affect them? This differs a great deal based on the substance that's being used. If you were to smoke pure DMT, the experience itself might be the most profound psychedelic experience of your life. You might not know you're even in the room anymore but it might last as little as 30 seconds. Whereas with something like LSD or magic mushrooms, which you can dose a little bit differently, can last, last with mushrooms about six hours, with LSD about 12, but you still can be aware, as long as you don't take too large a dose, of where you are in the room and what's going on. So the effects are really dependent on, again, both dosage and substance, which is why education is so important on these substances. However, there are some broad things that can be said about psychedelic experiences. They cause serious changes to our senses, the way that we perceive the world, our cognition, the way we think about the world, and most importantly, and this sets it apart from disassociatives and delirians, it interrupts our sense of self, who we are and how we interact with the world. This is particularly interesting because psychedelics disrupt what we would call the default mode network. When you're sort of daydreaming or not really paying attention to the task at hand, that's when you're sort of in the default mode network. It's the way that your brain interacts when you're not giving your attention to anything in particular. It's the baseline for how you start to experience the world. Psychedelics completely disrupt that in every way, so it's not a state you can really experience while you're high. Your sense of self is profoundly affected 
to the way to the way that you get this idea almost that you're in unity with all of the world. You start to wonder what's the real difference between me and the person over there, between me and these, this object, or you stop having any concept of I at all. This is called ego death. And in ego death, it's not that you are having an experience anymore. It's been described that an experience is having you, that you're only remembering something that happened to you more than something you've actively experienced in the moment. Now, the mild effects of psychedelics uh, can be described particularly when it comes to uh, the mixing of the senses. You can start to taste your favorite music and the way that an artist plucks at their guitar just perfectly. Or you can hear the beautiful, beautiful colors of a blue jay driving, uh, flying by. It is a complete disruption of the way that we experience the world and that we can start to think to ourselves, wait a second, has this all been more subjective than I thought it was? Is the way that I'm seeing the world really the only way it can possibly be seen? So obviously when you're thinking about these sorts of substances, you start to wonder if there's anything that connects these substances to spirituality. The experiences you have of intense beauty or unity or oneness of the world, how do they connect to spirituality? One way that we're able to do this is listening to trip reports. Because whoever is undergoing the psychedelic experience is the only one that's experiencing it, we have to listen to their description of the experience to get any data on what these substances do. One of the problems though with psychedelics is I'm sure you can hear from me trying to do some linguistic gymnastics is that the psychedelic experience is inherently ineffable. No matter how many times you try to describe it, you feel like you can't quite put it into words. So then we're faced with a dilemma. To understand the psychedelic experience, we have to listen to people's stories about what they experienced. And yet at the same time, the people telling these stories know it can never fully capture what happened to them. But let me try to give you a, a couple of story, uh, quick trip examples called trip reports that seem to demonstrate a little bit more about what someone might experience. Uh, when speaking of her own trip, uh, the Nobel Prize winner from chemistry, Carrie Mullis, once said, when you take 1,000 micrograms of LSD, you don't know that you've taken anything at all. It feels like that's just the way it is. You might fi suddenly find yourself sitting on a building in Egypt 3,000 years ago watching boats on the Nile. And that's all there's ever been. Now, a little bit of a more bizarre example comes from the DMT experiments of Dr. Rick Strassman at University of New Mexico. Before DMT was highly criminalized, he was able to do a number of experiments trying to figure out if this could treat mental illness, but also just trying to see what do these substances do and how can it talk to us about the mind and its inner workings. Subject Rex, who was one of the people who was given DMT, said this about his experience. When I was first going under, there were these insect creatures all around me. They were clearly trying to break through. 
I was fighting letting go of who I am or was. Again, that ego death sort of feeling. The more I fought, the more demonic they became, probing into my psyche and being. I finally started letting go of parts of myself as I could no longer keep so much of me together. As I did, I still clung to the idea that all was God and God was love, and I was giving myself up to God and God's love because I was certain I was dying. I accepted my death and dissolution into God's love, and the insectoids began to feed on my heart, devouring the feelings of love and surrender. It's not like LSD, it's different. As I was holding on to my last thought that God is love, they said, even here, even now, and I said, yes, of course. Bizarre. Hard to put into words, eh, little insects that feed on your emotions as you die and lead you to the decision that God is love, even in the worst and craziest of moments. Psychedelics causing these sorts of experiences where you might encounter moments of tremendous visions is the only way it can be called, has led some people to decide like Rick Strassman that the psychedelic experience is the same thing as the prophetic experience that we see in the Old Testament. Others have come to very different conclusions and I think rightfully so, uh, that psychedelics cause something closer to the mystical experience that we see throughout different religions. But even then, there are differences between how religions describe mystical experiences. But the fact remains that it's easy to see how psychedelic experiences can become deeply important religious experiences for people. In fact, since the beginning of the use of psychedelics, about 5,500 years ago is our earliest evidence. It's been connected to spirituality and religious practice among indigenous people. A thousand years ago, we, found, we find our first packet of ayahuasca, which is a specific uh, indigenous Amazonian brew that's used for one of the most tremendously powerful psychedelic experiences on earth. Indigenous people use psychedelics spiritually for a lot of different reasons, most commonly for divination to sort of see, okay, what's going to happen in the future? The crop's going to do all right. Why doesn't somebody love me? I lost an important item. Where could it have possibly gone? But more recently, in the 19th century and following, it's been used as a form of resistance against colonialism. This popped up particularly in the Native American church, which uses peyote containing the classical natural uh, psychedelic drug mescaline. It uses, they use this substance as a way to embody their power and connection to God, which was lost when many of them were forced off their ancestral land by the United States. Likewise, although uh, ayahuasca is such an ancient substance, some tribes only began using it in the 1970s when logging and mining pushed them off their land and other tribes introduced them to it. In this substance, they found a way to preserve and protect their cultural and cosmo cosmological view of the world. They believed that there was a nighttime and a daytime, a dream world and a waking world. And that psychedelics, particularly ayahuasca, could preserve that view of the world no matter where they were. Even if they were kicked off of the land that they had been living on for thousands of years, they could preserve their cultural heritage this way.
Now, coming more into the 20th century, Christianity, believe it or not, was the primary way that psychedelics were popularized. Albert Hoffman, who first uh, synthesized LSD and realized its properties in 1943, well, he was a devout Christian uh, living in the Swiss Alps, and he believed that psychedelics were revealed to him, LSD was revealed to him as a sort of providential turn, that just as people were creating the atomic bomb at the same time as a way to create worldwide destruction, he believed that LSD was a bomb of its own, a sort of love bomb that could be given out to the world to show there's a better way of doing things than blowing ourselves apart. A little bit later with the Good Friday experiment, which was at Boston College's chapel in 1963, this was the first time that scientists sat down and said, what do these substance act substances actually do to people in a spiritual way? So while the uh, preeminent uh, civil rights leader, Howard Thurman, preached a gorgeous sermon in the chapel that you can look up and listen to online, there were a group of seminarians and theology professors just below his feet who had taken psilocybin, the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, and were having a very interesting Good Friday experience indeed. Listening to some of the testimonies of these seminarians, you can hear how powerful the psychedelic experience was. One said, matter and time seemed to be of no consequence. I was living in the most beautiful reality I had ever known, and it was eternal. Somebody else said, I began to play the organ, wanting to play Christ the Lord is risen today, being motivated by a strange sense of joy. Another seminarian said, I immediately began to meditate and pray and read my New Testament, 1 Corinthians 13. I began to pray for forgiveness and praise God for the blessings of life. At the end of the experiment, when they were given a number of interviews to see how the psychedelic experience had affected them long term over the course of several months, one seminarian, and I'm paraphrasing here, said that before the psychedelic experience, he knew he should be a minister, but now he knew that he must, because God's love was truly still in the world and active. Beyond Christianity, we see that psychedelics can often cause these intense visions that are really uh, uh, violate the norms of what we would decide are religious barriers. So we see examples of Jews having uh, visions of Jesus or Christians having visions of Hindu deities. But more often than not, whatever religion that you hold dear, dear whatever your uh, commitment is to a spiritual path, that is the way that the visions of psychedelics tend to be revealed to you. People report seeing visions of deities and ancient heroes, and I've personally seen images of the Naharaja, also known as the Dancing Shiva, as well as Jesus, the writers of the Torah, demons, angels, though I'm rather agnostic about whether these were just my little daydreams or something of any real substance. It's also important to think about how much ego death, which we just talked about, can profoundly affect somebody spiritually. At the end of the day, there is something that unites us all, and it is that we are all going to die. And beyond that, that is the, the question that drives so many religions, often to the same rituals, the same places, the same words to try to describe 
how our lives can possibly have meaning when they're also such vapors, moments, here, then gone. Going through the psychedelic experience we found from experiments with cancer patients who are terminal largely takes away their death anxiety, that they lived good lives, it is what it is, acceptance, and moving forward into whatever the next adventure may be. And so it's with the spirituality of psychedelics that we can turn to the medical benefits of psychedelics. When you read a lot of literature online about how psychedelics work, you're often going to run into two uh, very different ways of understanding these substances. One sees psychedelics as far, primarily pharmacological substances, just as you might take an SSRI or an antipsychotic or something like that. If you just take the right drug, the chemicals in your brain will be shaken around and rebalanced and you're going to be okay. Your symptoms will start to disappear. The other way of approaching psychedelics has largely been that it is the experience of psychedelics. The trip that it causes that causes you to reflect on your life in conjunction with the chemical uh, properties within the brain that actually causes a difference in somebody's life and can help with their mental illness. Psychedelics have a demonstrated potential for treating depression, anxiety, PTSD, and addiction. And I can testify to how much it has helped me with my own lifelong depression, anxiety, and suicidal ideation. There's been proposed potential and studies that are coming uh, into uh, fruition for how it could treat OCD, chronic pain, anorexia, and even dementia, though some of these studies are far in the future. But what we're starting to see from these studies is something very important. We cannot commodify psychedelics. We cannot take psychedelics and turn them into a drug that you can just take here and there in small doses and expect a miracle to happen. Instead, what psychedelics do is cause us to ask some very hard questions of ourselves, our world, and our place in it. By opening up the heart and the soul and the mind, almost like a sort of psychic surgery, after all, psychedelics does mean mind manifesting, we can take a hard look at the patterns in our lives, we can take a hard look at the traumas that have ha happened to us, we can take a hard look at who we are, and it becomes much easier to make the decisions to change. Now, we also, I have to be responsible here, as wonderful as the positive effects of psychedelics are, and as clearly passionate about it as I am, there are definite risks when it comes to psychedelics that are worth talking about. First, a number of uh, subjects in clinical trials on psychedelics end up with worsened symptoms of mental illness than before they went into the study. Both in a uh, phase three, three MDMA trial run by the multiple, multiple disciplinary association for psychedelic studies, much more conveniently called MAPS, uh, they reported an increase of suicidality and suicidal behavior two months after the trip in 7% of the participants. This mirrors a 2022 psilocybin study published in the Journal of New England Medicine 
which found that about 7% of subjects reported again an increase in suicidality after their psychedelic trip. And if this is happening in the situations where you have a lot of medical professionals standing by to help, I'm going to put it out there that among people who are doing this in their friend's basement, those numbers are going to be higher. Multiple studies have also shown that although psychedelics do not increase the risk of psychosis, if you were someone at risk of psychosis who might have had a mother or a father, a sibling or a child who ended up with schizophrenia or bipolar, that you need to be careful about taking these substances because they can be a trigger which can cause this illness to emerge. A very interesting study that looked at the UDV ayahuasca church, which ayahuasca mentioned before, one of the most powerful psychoactive brews ever created, found that there was no or minimal increased risk of developing psychosis among the church members compared to the general population. Despite the fact that members of this church frequently take ayahuasca once a week, they weren't ending up with higher rates of psychosis than the rest of the population. Likewise, there have been a couple other studies that I saw in Nature that also showed that psychedelics really only have an increased risk of psychosis when combined with drugs like cocaine. Perhaps unsurprisingly, if you're mixing a powerful drug like LSD with an equally powerful dopamine-based drug like uh, cocaine, you're going to end up with more likely psychosis. There's also risk of drug interaction. A lot of things go into our bodies that we don't even think about every day when thinking about medications, supplements, that sort of thing. And because psychedelics have been so poorly studied in the past, we often don't know what these interactions are going to be. I was on an antibiotic a few weeks ago and thought maybe I'd head out and find magic mushrooms and have a trip, only to find that when I looked up the antibiotic I was taking, it affected the very enzymes which were used to break down psychedelics from the body, to clear the body out. And that there were a couple of case studies where people on this antibiotic could end up with much stronger trips than they expected because their liver wasn't prepared to break down the psychedelic like under a normal experience. So regardless of if you're thinking about psychedelics as, as something that needs to be, uh, can be taken recreationally or, or medically, this is something that you might want to talk with a sympathetic doctor about if you're interested in it. Lastly, the highest risk of psychedelics comes from misidentification of drugs and also through misdosing uh, 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 of drugs. So when you buy drugs off the street or through a Facebook group or many different ways that these drugs get sent out, dealers don't always know what they're doing. They don't have the chemistry background, which I also don't have. They might not understand what psychedelics are. And so they might send out something that they claim is a classical psychedelic like LSD when it's actually a novel psychedelic like something that's called N-bomb which actually does have a risk of overdose. So if you're used to taking three or four tabs of LSD and pop three or four tabs of a totally different substance, you can have seizures and even resulting death has been reported as a result. Additionally, 
maybe very unsurprisingly, when people are creating uh, tabs, pills, vials, whatever, these aren't FDA approved and the dosage is not uniform. You can one day take a tab that might be 50 micrograms of LSD, which would be a very mild trip, threshold really. And then the next day, you take one where whoever was making them wasn't paying attention, hits the dropper three times, and now it's three times stronger than you were expect expecting as a drug. So there are risks with psychedelics, and I'm afraid that a lot of the time in the psychedelic renaissance that is happening today, we're so afraid of demonizing psychedelics, and they have been demonized, that we're also afraid of talking about the real risk that can function as a result. But I want you to think of a different drug that has taken this country by storm for hundreds of years. Alcohol. Alcohol kills hundreds of thousands of people a year. It is one of the leading causes of accidents, one of the leading causes of organ damage. And yet we have decided that this poison that we can get all around us at any point can be something that we structure society around in our social lives particularly, and also that we've decided it is an acceptable risk that on Friday nights when we go home, we have to watch and be careful because every driver might be inebriated. We have accepted that as a risk for a substance like alcohol. Thinking into the future with imagination, how can we think about a society where we are structured around accepting and reducing the harm of a drug like LSD or magic mushrooms or mescaline or DMT, which is associated again, not with addiction, not with these massive overdoses, but instead largely with medical healing. This going to the back page is where I largely see Christians being very involved with the psychedelic Renaissance. Two things, harm reduction, harm reduction and integration. Harm reduction is really just making sure that if people are going to be using these substances, they do so as safely as possible. Since 2018, there have been over 250,000 overdoses of fentanyl. Many of these have occurred even in our local community among students who are connected to Duke or Chapel Hill, largely because people think they're taking one substance and it's been cut with a different substance entirely. So when we think about harm reduction, one of the first things we need to think about that I think churches can be a front line is providing overdose prevention methods. This might be using something like uh, Narcan, which you can get from the Durham, uh, 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 Board of Health down in uh, the Social Services building. That's where I got this one. Or you can also get free or reduced pricing on fentanyl testing, which can be given out to people so if they're ever at a party or if they are deciding to undergo an experience for themselves. Even if you don't think they might be an okay person to try this substance, they can test it to make sure they're not accidentally getting poisoned. You can also get reagent tests. If people are thinking they're going to be taking uh, uh, LSD, but in fact it's an amphetamine, which is not uncommon, you can buy tests where you can check what sort of substance is actually in this pill, vial, whatever it might be. 
And this is a way of making sure of what dosage am I about to take, of what substance I am about to take, and making sure that people are using things safely. If there's anything else I want you to bring away tonight, it's two words, set and setting. Set and setting are the two most important words of harm reduction. The difference between a bad psychedelic trip and a good psychedelic trip often hangs on these two things. Set is simply the mindset that you bring into a psychedelic experience. How are you feeling that way? What sort of anxieties are, ha you ha are hanging on your mind? Do you have an intention for the experience? Unsurprisingly, if a student has a massive exam that they're procrastinating on that's the next day and they're looking to get away from that anxiety, it might manifest itself quite negatively on a couple tabs of LSD. If somebody has broken up with a significant other or gone through a divorce, might not be the best time to use magic mushrooms when you're dealing with these very raw feelings. Instead, it's best to consider using psychedelics at a time where you are feeling centered, at a time where you are feeling safe, and a time where you feel capable of handing, handling this trip and only this trip, at least for the day and possibly for a day or two after. With set, go set it. In our society today, we have been taught to deny our physical and psychic needs over and over again. We're overworked. We're tired. Going through the pandemic for all of us was an exhausting thing, largely with the loss of community. And it can be hard for us to really think about what do I need physically and what does my mind need to be healthy? Sleep, rest, a clean environment, healthful foods. These are the sort of things that fuel our bodies and our minds safe environments where we don't feel like we constantly have to be on edge, such as in a negative work environment. I think churches can really step in and say, hey, if psychedelics best help people when they are feeling safe, when they are feeling taken care of, when they feel in community, and when they are reminded to take care of the physical needs that society often says, forget about that or the psychological needs where we're often told it's more important to get into work that day and instead put those needs first in our lives. I think that can be a way that we can start helping people who are undergoing psychedelic trips. Now, looking at set and setting and making sure that harm reduction is in place, I think there's one very, very important way that churches are going to have to step into the psychedelic revolution, whether they like it or not. And that is integration. Integration is simply asking ourselves the question, okay, if I've had this powerful experience that is completely dissimilar from everyday life, how do I take what I've learned or how the experience affected me into my everyday life? As the old Zen proverb says, before enlightenment, chop woods, chop wood, gather water. After enlightenment, chop wood, gather water. That can be a very difficult tension to hold on to after you've had these powerful experiences. And oftentimes, 
people, as we saw with my TJ Maxx story, people seek out those with spiritual education, ministers, or even just people that they think of as safe who are spiritual to ask them questions about what happened to me. What, how am I supposed to go on with my daily life? Again, I think of psychedelics almost as like a psychic surgery. You're ripping open the mind and pulling out the pieces that are uh, hurting, almost like uh, emotional or intellectual or psychological tumors or growths and repairing the body. But when you take out the difficult things that are draining your strength through surgery, you have to put the body back together again. You have to go through therapies. You have to go through treatments at home to make sure that you get the best benefit and heal from this surgery. That's what integration is. Once the mind has been flayed open and we see exactly who we are and how we live our lives and how we need to change or how others need to change for us, we have to figure out how to put those insights into action and actually change, how to go on living. In order to do this, I think that we need to have four particular attitudes, which I've put together as the acronym SOUL that's on your handout there. The first is skeptical agnosticism towards specific revelation. Believe it or not, people very, or maybe very believe it, people often come out of psychedelic experiences and believe that they have been given a revelation from God, an angel, a prophet, whatever, that they need to tell the world. In the Good Friday experiment, something that I found somewhat humorous is one seminarian became convinced that Jesus Christ had returned, tricked the people who, was watch who were watching him to opening the door, and then ran out into the street because he wanted to preach the love of God was returning today. Sometimes that just lasts until the trip ends. It's drug-induced psychosis. Other times it lingers a little bit and people really believe they have a revelation. This can be easily dismissed except for one problem. Many psychedelic trips actually have corroborating evidence that what the person experienced actually happened. This is particularly difficult. Again, if the trip is something that only the person that took the drug happened, we can't know what actually happened to them. We are listening to their testimony alone. But again, sometimes there's other evidence outside of it that seem to corroborate their story. One story that I think is particularly interesting is that of Eva Ponky. Eva Ponky was the wife of Walter Ponky, who ran the Good Friday experiment. Walter tragically died in a scuba diving accident at a young age, and was, his body was never recovered. This was very hard on Eva, obviously, and their young children to suddenly with, be without a father. And Eva did something that I personally would not recommend, and in the midst of grief, decided to go on an LSD trip with somebody supervising her who had experience to try to come to terms with her grief and how she could move on with her life. While on this trip, Eva, who was an academic herself, claimed that she met Walter again, that her husband came to her in this trip. And they had a great conversation and it's, it's gonna be okay, you can do this, you're strong, 
I'm proud of you. I love you. And as Walter, the ghost of Walter, is walking away, he says, oh, and one more thing. I borrowed a book when I was alive, and I need you to return it. It's this title, borrowed from this friend, on this bookshelf, in the attic, on this shelf, in this space, in the row. And Eva comes out of the trip and tells people what happened, and they go to her home, to the attic, to the bookshelf, to the shelf, to the position of books, and find this book that was indeed borrowed from a friend that needed to be returned. Now, there are really only two options when it comes to this story, then. Either Eva really did run across Walter Ponky back from the grave, or she's lying. And she already knew about the book. That's it. I personally am not willing to tell a widow that she is lying. Nor am I willing to really go into deep questioning with her and decide whether or not she's telling the truth. This is why skeptical agnosticism is important. You don't want to have, if this evil was part of your congregation, and being a Christian, she was part of a church. It might be difficult to have her going around telling people something of great theological importance, but you also want to make sure that you are caring for her soul and that she is able to get, if this really happened, the most care that she can and confirmation that she can from the experience. A more difficult story that I ran across was from a young man who said he was a conservative Christian fundamentalist, had become an atheist, took magic mushrooms, and met Jesus on this trip. And Jesus said, well, you have heard of me with the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But did you know about the Gospels of Thomas and Philip? And this young man, raised in a pious, conservative household, really didn't think that this was real Jesus, nor did he think that the Gospel of Philip or Thomas even existed, because everyone knows there's only four. Imagine his surprise when coming down and out of the trip to not only find that there are such a thing as the apocryphal Gospels of Thomas and Philip, but that the content of these Gospels match the, con the content that Jesus gave him in this vision. Again, this drove this young man to church. This drove him to be in Christian community, to reconvert to the faith. And I, I wouldn't really want to speak down to that. I really wouldn't like to criticize that. But I also wouldn't want him giving a testimony on Sunday morning about how Jesus appeared to him in a vision and we all need to start reading the Gospels of Philip and Thomas in church. So that's the tender balance we must have with integration in church spaces. Making sure that because none of us can know whether or not this experience really happened, we treat people who have such experiences with great care, compassion, listening, allowing them to have the space to believe it if they wish to, while also containing a web of skepticism to make sure you don't end up with another prophet on your hands who has meetings after the church service. But this is where, oh, open minds and hearts towards intrapersonal effects really comes in. If somebody trusts you, if you spend the first days and weeks and months after this experience listening to what they have to say, they are more likely to trust you going forward. They're more likely to listen to what you have to say 
when you start asking those skeptical questions, when you start wondering, is there any other way this could have happened? We can't start with skepticism. We have to start with an open mind and an open heart that says, I believe that something happened to you that has affected you. And I will listen to you before I try to critique it. Also, I think this is particularly the case with people who are very theologically educated. We have to utilize the strangely familiar and the familiar, familiarly strange within the Christian tradition. We, as Christians, believe very bizarre things. We believe in a resurrection and a man who floated up into the sky. Many of us might believe in the power of dreams or even speaking in tongues, revivals, that Jesus is truly present in the, blood, in the uh, uh, bread and the wine that we take on Sunday mornings. I personally am a fan of the Eastern Orthodox theosis, that we are being merged, in a sense, into the energies of God in this life and the next. And what about more from the Catholic tradition, but also in Anglicanism as well, contemplative imagination and Lectio Divina, where we are invited to envision as vividly as possible over the course of several days sometimes what happened in the, in the scripture stories and what new details are being revealed to us that make that story more powerful. When we have someone with a great deal of theological education that comes to us, or maybe even somebody that doesn't, when they're asking themselves, how can this strange otherworldly experience fit into my normal everyday life? It can be very easy as people who already believe rather strange things to invite them into Christian community by asking what similarities are there between what we already believe or what I believe and you are now interested in and the experience that you had. And finally, and I think this is again very important, always lead people towards therapy and mental health professionals. I don't want to put down the importance of clergy in the psychedelic revolution. In fact, what we're seeing at Johns Hopkins or at a lot of these, uh, uh, um, what would you want to call them? Ashrams that are going up in Colorado or Jamaica or that sort of thing. You see a lot of people who are trying to medicalize psychedelics now putting out calls to hire clergy, chaplains, because many people come out of their psychedelic experience and one of their first questions is, where's a pastor, where's a priest, where's a preacher, where's a rabbi? I need to talk to them. So this is important. But I also think we all understand that a pastor is a pastor and is not a mental health professional. And it's going to take a lot of people with different skills and backgrounds to help people fully integrate the experiences they have into their everyday life. Something I'm particularly worried about is that when psychedelics destabilize the norms, the basic questions we have about life, and unglue our basic assumptions about the world, again, you've always just seen colors, but what is it like to taste them, and how is it possible to ever go back? You've always had a clear boundary between me and everyone else. How am I supposed to go back to treating someone like someone else when I experience them as me? <laughs> In these situations, I am starting to worry and see the rise of psychedelic cults, 
Neo-Nazi and right-wing groups, white supremacist groups, are starting to use psychedelics quite often. Yes, unfortunately. And we're reaching a point where psychedelics, when they unglue a lot of those basic assumptions, if someone isn't rooted in a community with a lot of connections to help them put the pieces back together again, there are plenty of crazy people on TikTok or Facebook or whatever who are willing to reach in, grab them by the heart, and pull them in a direction they do not want to go. This worries me a great deal. This is where mental health professionals and clergy can stand together and be a barrier between people who are undergoing these experiences and those who wish to do harm or exploit them. Now, the talking part of this experience here tonight is just about over. Thank goodness, I think, for all of us. Instead, I want you to look at your handout that you had here, and I have a case study that I want us to think about. This case study, and I don't know if there's any pens around that we could pass out if they're around here. Okay, that's fine. Uh, one of the things I think a lot of people have writing instruments already. One of the things I want us to think about is really what would you do if you were placed in the situation or asked for advice on how to handle someone who has had a psychedelic experience? What tools do you see in your tradition what things might have you have learned this evening to help really give spiritual care to someone who is coming forward to your congregation. And again, these are people who might already be in your congregation, you just don't know it yet. That's how prevalent these experiences are. So first, let me read you a little story about Ash, a non-binary 19-year-old college student who used LSD. Ash is a nursing student at UNC Chapel Hill, and they started showing up to your church's college ministry about a month ago, and they are very passionate about it. They have told you before that being queer was very difficult for them growing up, and they were kicked out of their fundamentalist church when they came out. They feel very safe and loved in your community, and they have made a great deal of friends in the short time that they've been there. You've noticed that they don't really seem to have any theological education or catechesis, not even Sunday school level things. Instead, their beliefs seem to be a hodgepodge of Christianity, Wicca, and general New Age ideas. And their social media is full of self-made spiritual influencers. One day, Ash asked to tell their testimony of conversion to the entire church for their college ministry-oriented service that you put on every year. When they send you an email of the testimony ahead of time, you learn that Ash took three tabs of LSD about three months ago. During the trip, Ash believes that they met Moses and Elijah, who told them that Jesus in the Bible was really a metaphor for love consciousness which could be accessed through either drugs or activities like meditation or playing music that create a higher energy. Ash learned on this trip that God loved them just how they were. And this is why Ash chose to return to church. They finally felt safe again in a spiritual atmosphere. When you follow up with Ash and start asking some good questions, you learn that they are still using psychedelic drugs that they buy from their neighbor in the dorms. It began with weekly LSD or shrooms trips, but now they are also smoking NNDMT almost every day. 
Sometimes they even mix substances to get a stronger effect. How do you think you would respond to that? Or how would you want someone who's in ministry with your congregation to respond to that? Can you clarify what, what drug I'm not familiar with? The one they smoke, what is it? Uh, NNDMT is just uh, a very, very powerful classical psychedelic that's been used since the 60s that creates fully immersive psychedelic experiences that last about 30 seconds to a couple minutes. So they're not even aware that they'd be in the room at that point. So somebody might do that every day? Yeah, because it, unlike a lot of other psychedelic drugs, NNDMT has no tolerance. Immediately, you're back to a zero tolerance level after using it. Um, so somebody could conceivably, and sometimes do, use it several times a day. So it's man-made? It's, well, it's, made, it's found in the natural world a lot, but it, to get to the point where it actually affects your mind, takes a pretty high dose that you're not going to get from like eating a plant that has it because your body breaks it down so quickly. Well, with the poly substance use, I would have a conversation about harm reduction, talk about fentanyl test strips, make sure they have access to naloxone, and also tell them about the Yunsky School of Drug Checking Lab so they can know what is in their substances. Um, curious, um, also local resource. And then I would practice the ministry of presence and just talk and be present with them and listen and try to learn from them. Fantastic. Yeah. I would say that knowing that God loves us exactly as we are is really, really good news. Yes. And it's yeah. what keeps me going and I'm so glad. <laughs> that you've had that experience too, and that's just the best. Yeah, I think that's great. I do like the fact that the, the strips are available and mm -hmm. testing and all that. Um, I would tend to be a little um, just cautious and worried about how long someone could go on like that and yeah. maybe you know, um, find out who a good couple of good friends of hers. Does she have family? Have they, do they have family? And just kind of stay in touch gently, maybe, but, but because it could, you know, for five years when I was a teenager in college, mm -hmm. um, you know, we I did some experimenting and you know had community and, but um, because I, you know, psilocybin and the um, uh, peyote, mm -hmm. the, the natural things are are very easy, mm -hmm. but you know LSD is just not. Some of the man-made, you don't know what you're getting, and, and you can be scared. And yeah. So I would think just um, she needs some. That needs attention. Mm -hmm. I love I love your suggestion about helping them build supportive community because that's clearly what they're seeking out in that moment by coming to such a college ministry. But looking for, is there, even if you were not in contact with their fa your family, is there anyone that you trust? You know, building those sorts of connections where they can go through integration and feel safe because people are willing to just listen and affirm what they have to say, give them the tools to stay safe, and also build broader community for them that's not just attached to the ministry.
I, I feel deeply concerned about this, what sounds like a growing habit, um, and I'm completely not qualified to, to comment on that. So, so I think um, I'm not sure what to do with that concern of mine, except encourage them to network more deeply. Mm -hmm. Yet, because most because classical psychedelics aren't chemically addictive and very difficult to be psychologically addictive, addicted to, this would be something more akin to um, yeah, almost cultish behavior, where you just keep going back to this, you're getting the spiritual high over and over again because it's giving your life meaning. That's more what you're going back to than just the experience itself. Yeah. yeah. What do you mean by um, it's very difficult for that for for that use to become psychologically addictive? It sounds like that's kind of what's going on in this case study, isn't it? Well, so thinking about psychological thinking about psychological addiction from my perspective on this would be the difference between can I function in everyday life without this substance, or is this something that I'm ch that I'm chasing as an as an end in and of itself. So if someone is repeatedly going to church every day, multiple times a day, whatever you want to call it, I'm worried about pushing towards calling something like that addiction, uh, when what it really is, is is chasing deeper and deeper to a new thing that's fascinating you, that, that's, that's grabbing your attention. I think that's different than, for instance, thinking about marijuana. People that have to get high before they go to work. They are not going to be able to get through work unless they're high. That's different for me than fascination. I can't stop reading about the subject. I can't stop pursuing this subject. And I think that's an important distinction to make. I think like with the chaotic use, then it influences your ability to hold a job or things mm -hmm, like right. that. Yeah. And right. since addiction kind of has a different definition for everybody, it's a little tricky because we don't have a diagnostic term for addiction yeah, yeah. Um, and so while it is certainly like something they're doing quite frequently if it's not interfering with their ability to hold relationships and hold a job and be connected into a community I feel like that isn't necessarily mm. problematic substance use uh, and and yeah because this is something that I talking with uh, uh, some psychologists who are working with this is the diff thinking about the fact that not all compulsive behavior is addictive behavior. That there can be a lot of, there can be a lot of different motivations, especially unconscious motivations for why you're doing something. And so what, I, what I'd be most worried about with going for sort of an addiction angle, even if it's a psychological one, is that we, we just wouldn't do that when it comes to a non-substance a non that's also being pursued extensively in a religious form. If somebody is just repeatedly going back to the same religious experience they can get at church every day, daily mass I've seen with some Catholics, that's what gets them through the day. I'm afraid of sort of uh, pathologizing people who pursue psychedelics so deeply, especially because that's really common to do it so much in the beginning, and then that tapers off after the fascination sort of fades, and they can go back to daily life. Um, Morgan, did you have a question? Yeah, I was going to say, um, I think definitely asking, you know, maybe what they're seeking, what they're looking for. I mean, I think if you're, 
Obviously, none of us are, well, I don't, I don't want to say we're trained in this, but I mean, if you know generally about it, totally, if you're trying to see something, you usually have those conversations of like, either that psychedelics those are a meaningful experience, what are you looking for in this? And um, uh, that's not shaming, mm -hmm. I think, but it's, it's uplifting in a sense of let's talk more, and that could lead to very, really helpful conversations. And I also think, I mean, this is a college ministry, so, I don't know if every person in college ministry is going to want to hear about psychedelics, but some will. And I think it's a really cool topic to talk about in a, in a spiritual space because not many places do, especially in a traditional church setting. And so I think if I were leading a, a college ministry, and I would assume there's probably another person or a few other people who have done an experience like this, I probably would maybe center a sermon or a series on psychedelic use or kind of what is, what is meaning mean after a psychedelic experience, you know, mm -hmm. or just talk about generally. I think yeah. that would be cool. That's a good idea. Yes? Um, I, I do know that for quite a long time, not just with the pandemic, you know, the mental health um, has been an issue in our culture mm -hmm. in, in a really um, extreme way. And so some of what you just described of this case study was doing seems um, like they were using the tools they had to self-medicate mm -hmm. and had good intentions. So, because they don't have oversight, but still, you know, it's it's meant to be, because a lot of people self-medicate in different ways, jogging or just all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, and I think that's an important thinking about whether it, it could be a self-medicating situation is asking again back to the the thinking about the meaning is it actually the substance that's giving them the fix that they're looking for or are they just dying for meaning in a frequently meaningless culture especially with no family in this context to think about who am i what am i supposed to do with my life what is going on what i frequently find in these conversations is that people are more than willing to quit psychedelics or stop using it or give it a give it a pause when they feel like there's something else that can give their life meaning, that their life matters again. Uh, and that's actually what they're looking for, not, not the high necessarily. And that's another point that I think is important to bring up is for somebody of this age, 19 years old, not old enough to even drink in this country. This is not the time. One of the things that psychedelics do is increase the neuroplasticity in your brain so that you can start making new connections and breaking down old ones. The newsflash is young brains already do that. <laughs> that is what young brains are good at. It's why they're good at learning with fluid and not crystal intelligence. So when you are adding more <laughs> fluidity, when you're adding more neuroplasticity, it might lead to some connections that you don't want, that you don't realize you're making until it's too late. So maybe yes, and then personally in this situation, after doing a good listening, I would eventually get to the pause of, hey, I think you're too young for this. Why don't we get, why don't we get you into a situation where you can find meaning in other ways? Let's try this spiritual practice. Utilize the familiarly strange and the strangely familiar. 
Have you tried doing dream journaling? Have you tried these different things where you can give them the search for meaning that they're looking for, but without the drugs that they are probably too young to be trying? Hmm. Well, in their youth ministry at school, and everybody would have spiritual directors. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Hmm. Great. All right, let's move on to the next one to make sure that I get everybody out on time. And that is Amy, a 35-year-old lawyer who spoke 5-MeO-DMT. 5-MeO-DMT, uh, we didn't talk about that much in this uh, uh, discussion, is one of the most powerful psychedelic drugs that exists. And it's most known for creating this sort of white light, is how it's been described, where you have complete ego death. You, there's no sense of you whatsoever. There is only this white expanse. That's it. And so a lot of people who, there's been a couple of interesting studies looking at comparing different psychedelics to near-death experiences and how people interpret them. And 5-MeO-DMT seems to be the closest to a near-death experience that you can get out of a psychedelic. So from that story, uh, on to the next one. All right. Amy has been a member of your church since she was a kid. She followed the traditional white-collar, upper-middle-class path in life. UNC degree, married a nice guy, joined a corporate law firm in Raleigh, has three kids in a private primary school. A few months ago, she mentioned to you that she was feeling a bit depressed. She had everything that she wanted in life. Why is it that she felt so empty? She decided that maybe she just needed an adventure and chose to go out to Colorado to ski with some friends. While on the skiing vacation in Colorado with old friends, Amy is invited by one of them who lives in Denver now to a legal 5-MEO DMT smoking ceremony. She accepts it as her adventure. Upon returning to the triangle, Amy exhibits significant personality change. She has decided to quit her job and downsize her house in order to pursue a more fulfilling career working to end the death penalty and solitary confinement in prisons. Her husband, Dan, is perplexed by this change, but still supportive. During a meeting, Amy expresses that she had a near-death experience and was consumed by the light of God on 5-MeO-DMT, brought into God's very being. She realized that life is a gift, something you only get once and you need to make it count, even if it means giving up a lot of luxuries. She wanted to live out the values of Jesus found in the Gospels, and she has no intention of using psychedelics again. She thinks the one experience was enough, and she's re re ready to change parts of her life. If Ash is sort of the... Uh, uh, chaotic neutral of this situation. This is more of the uh, 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 ordered neutral. How would you respond to that? Or I want someone to respond to that? You go, girl. Yeah. That's, That's about what I think. Go for it. I mean, it sounds like just a, a the kind of reordering of values that faith informs. I mean, it just sounds like a really intense spiritual maturity. Yeah. 
I mean, I have known one person that had a psychic break. Yeah. And you can near death experience. I mean, I had 20 years as a home health nurse, and a lot of dozens of people, they die and come back, and it's, you know, it's, it's not something to play around with. So that, I mean, that's just my personal. And, and I appreciate and one life. Yes. Yeah. We don't normally use any, one life is too many. Yeah. But, but it could be, it could be good. I don't know. And that's, and that's going back to that skeptical agnosticism. Mm -hmm. This sounds quite close to what could be a manic episode. You I can't go back. Yeah. She's something. She's something, something else that happened. Significant personality change, sudden change in values, selling your house, changing careers. These are a lot of the things that when people are looking for as someone experiencing a manic episode, which if you have genetic predisposition, psychedelics can cause, this is the sort of thing you'd be on the lookout for. So you're stuck in this middle place. On the one hand, this sounds awesome. Good for you. On the other hand, how far is too far? Is it I'm going to divorce and leave my family because I need to focus on the spiritual goal? Is it actually I can sell all my family's possessions and, and mortgage everything, including my children's future, because the, the spiritual thing to do? Think about where that line would be where things, things don't seem to be all go for it. But at the same time, you also don't want to crush that. You don't want to crush this beautiful experience, which very much could be authentic. We all go through a midlife crisis at one time or another, every single person. And this could be, right, and this could be something she was already thinking about in the back of her mind that would need a lot of change that she wasn't willing to do that is now brought forth thanks to this psychedelic experience. It's a great example of everyone needs a church community. Yes. And that's, that is the difference here between Ash and Amy is already having a safe community to come back to and be in community with to mm. ask these questions. Mm. I think I would try to steer the conversation towards couples therapy mm. um, and, and, you know, affirm Amy's experience, but say something like, um, you realize how drastic this is. And as a community, you know, we, we care about marriage and we care about What's his name? Dan. And, and <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's figure out how we can yeah. go through this together. Yeah. Make sure that your values are still aligned. Yeah. Yes. Great values. Yeah. Right. Yeah, because I thought about the kids of, I mean, that's a huge change for young kids. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think that would be not just couples therapy, but hey, how are your kids doing in this? What, what are your values with your children? How is that going to play out the same school with, in the same mm -hmm. school? So that's a big change. I mean, it's not, yeah, it's not denying her experience, but it is also kind of, I think, I think there's a sentiment that happens with those questions. Yeah, yeah I think that's really good. One, one nuance I'd also like to highlight here as we're thinking about this is the difference between realization and revelation. Mm -hmm. In, in good therapy context, the therapist doesn't tell you what to do. You kind of go down your little road and evaluate your values and end up, end up making the realization for yourself of, oh, okay, I see. Looking at this story, this feels more to me when I wrote it like it was realization. Something that God didn't tell her, 
you should now go sell your house and life is a gift. Instead, thinking back on it, whoa, that's crazy. Which often happens in near-death experiences where there's not a lot of informational context. Mm -hmm. It's just thinking back on it the hours and days later, what does this mean? Mm -hmm. Compared to someone like Ash, for whom Moses and Elijah came down and told them this is the way things are. Mm -hmm. And that's a nuance that really needs to be teased out in these conversations with listening, too, with how did you come to this conclusion? That's now a question you can ask, as opposed to asking someone who had a revelation. It is now solely Jesus told me, Moses told me, God told me. And she's someone who has had a, a very conforming lifestyle up till now. Yeah. High achievement, high conformity. Mm. Um, there's got to be stress, not Yeah, and that's, that's something that we saw a lot in the 60s and 70s with people using psychedelics, was very much, uh, you could throw off a lot of the stress of uh, conventional life by just choosing to be unconventional. You don't have to deal with, well, what is the dean going to think of me? Doesn't matter. I'm Timothy Leary. I can do what I want. I'm the high priest of LSD. Those are the sorts of things you saw where people, people who had real deep psychological trouble fitting into school community, church community, friend community, whatever, can just decide I'm abandoning it and doing a new thing. Or go move to a commune. Or go move to a commune. Yes, exactly. But she's going to fight the death penalty. I mean, they're... they're so I hope that these two stories in particular show you that this is incredibly complicated. But these people are already showing up at churches. I get emails on a pretty regular basis from pastors who said, I scoured the internet and you're one of the only accessible people I could find. What the heck is going on? And I hope that with this information that I provided with the handout, you can go to my website, follow my podcast. I've got a lot of things. I want y'all to have some of the resources, not that I'm telling you what to do, but that I, there are some smart people in this room who are asking good questions. And I want us to be able to have those community conversations to learn how, as religious people, as Christians, how are we going to care for these folks? When, when North Carolina maybe finishes their $5 million PTSD uh, grant for treating first responders and veterans with psilocybin, those people could be in your congregation. And they're going to be coming and asking, hey, can I do this? I've struggled with what happened to me in Iraq or Afghanistan. Is this going to be okay? How can I count you in as part of my community? This is going to happen, whether it's this year or five years from now or ten years from now. And I just want us to be ready. So that brings me back to Ash, who wanted to, what, preach on you Sunday and give her, give their testimony, um, which terrifies me as their pastor. Um, and, and so I think it's, it, in that case, then it's identifying the continuum and, and saying something along the lines of, um, 
I think your story is so important, and as a congregation, I'm not sure we're ready to hear it from the pulpit on Youth Sunday. And as you suggested, uh, can we start with the book study? <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, let's, let's workshops. We, we need to have this yes. conversation yeah. in more places before we're ready to. Yeah. Um, we need to be educated ourselves. Yeah. 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 I mean, I went back to Tennessee where I lived 45 years, and there was half the group, well, a bunch of college kids, we were like 10 of us, having dinner, and, and like half of them were microdosing. And I can't remember, I remember asking them where they got it. One was a doctor, and you know, I'd known them you know, all my life. And so I was really surprised. Mm -hmm. And they said just to take the chill off. But you know, if people my age were doing it, um, yeah. If they were doing it, it's probably all over. Yeah. Because I'm just, you know, wasn't aware. Year over year, we just see explosive increase in. And they said psilocybin. And and the thing about the fascinating thing about psilocybin with explosive use and where are they getting it? Um, it's not illegal to own psilocybin spores. Well, he's an spores. anesthesiologist, so who knows? Well, you you can still. you can buy this stuff off the internet. Put the Q-tips in a bag of uh, Uncle Ben's rice and have ounces of dried magic mushrooms under your bed within a few months. That's how easy access is even when this is highly criminalized. Huh. So particularly if you have communities of people who feel safe, a cop is not breaking into my eight-bedroom home and looking under my bed, they can grow that for themselves and share it with a group of 50 of their friends and still have mushrooms left over. So it is growing exponentially because it is really so accessible and there's these bizarre loopholes where if, if I stick the Q-tip into the rice, it's now illegal. But as long as I have it in the mail in a letter, that's totally fine. So how do we reckon with that? Like the church's influence on the temperance movement and the criminalization of these drugs and the war on people who use drugs. Like how do we reckon with that and atone for that? Mm -hmm. This, yeah, this is something that I have wrestled with a great deal. And I think one of the ways that's most important to look at it is that when it came to psychedelics, there were Christians on both sides of that divide. There were a lot of Christians who were involved in research, like Walter Ponky, like uh, uh, William Richards, uh, who, uh, who were really interested in this can do a lot for our faith. This can do a lot for to heal us, but I think the real big the real big thing that churches can do um, is start thinking about um, institutionalization, whether that's of substances or spirituality or other things. One of the worst psychedelic laws ever enacted was that peyote, the buttons of ca uh, the cactus buttons that contain mescaline. Those were made illegal because indigenous people were using it as mm. part of their ceremonies. But if any Yahoo from Yale wanted to order ounces of pure mescaline, all they had to do was write a letter. It is the institutionalization of saying who looks good, who doesn't look good, who is part of mainstream society, who's not, that really drove the wedge into criminalization. That as Richard Nixon said, you know, we can't outlaw the people, but we can outlaw the substances they use. 
So, yeah, yeah. Explain some of that. Yeah. It's a great movie. So I, I think there's a great article I'm actually commenting on for the Journal of Psychedelic Studies that's coming out this spring uh, from Brian McCarthy, who's a Catholic philosopher who talks on psychedelics, and Hunt Priest, who's an Episcopal priest who talks about psychedelics. And they point out a number of people in the 60s and 70s uh, who were really big, they were really devout Christians, but they were really uh, pounding on Christianity and psychedelics should be part of counterculture. Mm -hmm. if, this is a, if this is a culture of death, as Pope Francis says, or as Jürgen Moltmann said, this is a marketplace of violence, Christianity and psychedelics can both find a place to come together as they did in the 60s and 70s and say, we're not going to be part of this, this culture of death, this institutionalism anymore that ruins people's lives with incarceration. Few couple more minutes for questions. Yeah. Um, so, so there. Um, I mean, there are like two different stances. It seems like the church could take. One of them is just like a, like a. I mean, this, this distinction is too too cut and dry. Mm -hmm. I understand. But the, like, there's the pastoral response. Okay. Given that we have folks that are being going to have these experiences, how can we best respond to those folks yeah. in a loving, accepting way? How can we help them sort of integrate, you know, their experience in, in a way that is positive, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's adaptive. Yeah. Okay. So that's one. The other is to say, and and I'm not suggesting that these are opposed, I just I'm curious. Yeah. Um, the other is to say there's something there's something valuable about the experience itself. Um, that uh, such that if it's done the right way, it, it's a it's a positive good. So uh, I don't know where I'm going with this now exactly. Yeah, I got the point maybe. But um, so so what are what are you saying? Are you sorry? I mean, it, we've done a lot of sort of the pastoral here, mm -hmm. right? But every now and then you say things that that sound to me like. Oh, but this is there's there's something good in this experience. Like I mean, you said, you know, uh, realization versus revelation. But we've also said, well, this kind of sounds revelatory, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, so what what is your view there? Personally, from from a sort of a theological perspective, but also my view on it, mm -hmm. I think psychedelics are the modern world's versions of dreams. Say that again? The psychedelics are sort of the modern world's version of dreams. Oh. Dreams. Dream. Like we have at night. Dream. Okay. In, in the ancient Christian world and in medieval history, <laughs> dreams were taken very yeah. seriously. But when you read particularly the Desert Fathers in the Philokalia, there's some great people who go, you know, sometimes God appears in dreams and tells you what you need to do and you better listen. And then the next line go, also, it could be demons. Yeah. <laughs> also, also, you know, you could have just eaten something funny. Or as Ebenezer Scrooge said, there's more to gravy than grave about you. Uh, also, it could just be your mind remembering what happened the previous day. They wrestled with very similar experiences with these really vivid dreams or hesychasm with the contemplative, mystical, visionary experience where they didn't know, quite know what to do with this either because there is value in the experience itself and it's super dangerous. Mm 
there's one per, there's one particular I can't remember where in the Philokali it is, but one monk had such a strong vision from God in meditation. He threw himself down a well because in this vision, he believed God was down the well. Kind of in my mind, this, uh, a parallel to someone on LSD, you know, jumped through a window because they thought they could fly. But even with that struggle with, you gotta be careful with how you do these spiritual practices, there is real good here, but you gotta use it well. Um, there was the ability to recognize even the equivalent of harm reduction with dreams and, yeah. and mystic visions. So I, again, there's kinds of traditions of yeah. discernment that come out of that as well, right? Exactly. Yeah. So again, I, I think that goes back to utilizing the familiarly strange. I don't think this is brand new. I don't think this is radically different than other things in the Christian tradition. I just think we've forgotten how enchanted our religious beliefs are. And we're starting to rediscover it. Smoke-filled rooms in the back of temples. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yes. It's so interesting. I mean, thinking about the Desert Fathers, for instance, that they, they punish their bodies, right? I mean, they live such such extreme lives that we don't know exactly what that might have done yeah. to their psyches. Yes, I absolutely agree with yeah. that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. There's. Yeah. I. I. One thing I will say that I think is very interesting about. Um, dreams too, to your point, um, is that we we have we've totally forgotten in the modern world that, like what dreams can mean to us. Mm -hmm. That we kind of hallucinate many of us every night, and then it's just a silly little thing we do, and we go about our day. When you know, part of Christian tradition has been it wasn't like a TV receptor where where God is giving you images or revelations in your dream. You see in scripture in early church history that during sleep, it was believed your soul was ricocheted into the cosmos and you sort of wandered around while you slept. That's also similar to what the ascetics talked about. If you can push your body for, far enough, you can go out there. You don't have to be trapped in the body anymore. So again, I think, I think that those can be two sides of the same coin where don't harm yourself, don't. If you don't have to push yourself that hard, don't do it. Before, you know, before enlightenment, chop wood, do the dishes. After, chop wood, do the dishes. You don't have to radically change everything about your life. And I think if we just had better, better views of all of the Christian tradition, all of its beautiful mysticism and practices, this wouldn't look so weird and foreign anymore. Or as scary. We'd have tools to start to approach it. Are you going to be knowing anybody who has a mental health you know, specialty in this subject? Because it seems... I am actively pursuing my master's in psychology to go for my with my master's in divinity. Um, and I, I follow up with people particularly connected to the Journal of Psychedelic Studies for whom I can ask particular questions. Mm -hmm. um, and they've... So there's, you can let us know. Yes, I can let you know. So, so, taking this one step further then, should we be encouraging people to use psychedelics? I don't think so. Okay. I think this is a beautiful tool that if somebody believes they're ready to do it, they'll come to us. They, they can come to us and come to the substance themselves. Mm -hmm. I do not... I do not think, again, realization versus, versus yeah. revelation. 
it, this is particularly true with some of the Johns Hopkins studies of psychedelics and how things can go kind of wrong, mm -hmm. is there's uh, someone who was in one of the studies was saying that uh, right before going through the psilocybin experience, one of the researchers was like, all right, you're about to meet God. Well, that kind of ruins the data, doesn't it? Because, <laughs> because all of the people involved in, this, in these studies are perennialists who believe that psychedelics actually do induce mystical experience. And so, of course, they're going to sort of push that perspective. When we don't let people explore for themselves, we do a huge disservice to them. I also think looking at older studies of LSD from the 50s and 60s, only about a third of people who took it for the first time said it was a deeply spiritual experience. Those numbers are now reversed when it comes to psilocybin, that two-thirds of people say it's one of the most powerful spiritual experiences they've ever had. Mm -hmm. So when we, we've already created enough of a culture of trying to tell people what they're going to experience, mm -hmm. I think telling people to take it is also just another yeah. step too far. Yeah. We've never had a drug-free society, so it's kind of just a reality that yeah. drugs are a part of our world. And yeah. so, mm -hmm. And for these drugs, talking about the law and everything, yeah. I wrote down, don't, no advice, you know, so I would never give anybody any advice on anything. I, because you still have that law, you know, illegal is out there. I think there's a diff, I think there's a difference between uh, not giving advice on how to illicitly obtain and not giving advice on if you're going to illicitly obtain, how are you going to do this safely? Yeah. Uh, I, I harm reduction is harm is a big thing there. Where there I yeah protect people for calling nine one one in case of emergency. Yeah. Because I I mean I've talked to people who have done cocaine recreationally. I am not pro cocaine in the slightest. <laughs> Please, but when but when they've asked me, hey, I'm going to do I am going to do cocaine. Okay. Are you going to have it tested? Do you know how strong it is? Do you have a reagent test? Do, if you're going to do this, do it safely. We saw how well abstinence-only education worked in schools. There's, it's not the best idea to push that approach. It just doesn't work. All right. Well, thank you all for being part of this discussion this evening. Before you all head out, if you want to grab one of my business cards and also look at my little psychedelic museum of Christian psychedelia from the 60s, you can do that. <laughs>